0: Welcome to the Theatre of the Midnight Sun, the 21st Century Stage for Stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. NAB returns late at night to the Ashland Institute in hopes of secretly finding a way in and perhaps getting some information in Part 4 of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. Petey dropped me off on the roadway near the parking lot to the Institute and disappeared back home. It would be my show this time, no sense him risking his neck as well, not to mention his badge. When we left the house, he'd been on the phone with Gypsum, whom I'd asked him to call. I wanted Gypsum standing by at her home. Chances were I might need her once I was on the inside. And so I quietly slunk across the lot to Ashlyn's front door. The scan light under the walk came on just like before my skin crawling slightly. I didn't bother with the lighted buttons on the panel beside the door, knowing it would only prompt another visit from that blonde mama grizzly. Instead, I reached in my pocket and pulled out the blank white card I'd found at Ham's place. I inserted it into the bank card-like slot under the button column I'd seen on my first visit. It sucked the card in, and I waited for either a slight click, letting me know the door had unlocked, or the far less subtle sound of an alarm bell. Unfortunately, neither happened. Instead, after about five seconds and a soft whirring sound, the machine simply spit the card back at me. I tried the door, still locked. I pushed the card in for another go round but this time, barely a second passed before the system coughed it up again. Then it occurred to me, if Ham had been a client, they obviously already knew of his death and would have shut off the card's access. Which is probably why they hadn't done a full-blown search for it at his house. No need to. But that hadn't been the case with Megan. Chances were good that no one had known who he really was. Nor did anyone, besides the department I hoped, know he was dead. I pulled his card from my other pocket and, holding my breath, slipped it in. Sure enough, two lights at the column's bottom fluttered, and suddenly the door's lock released something I felt more than heard. The card's white tongue emerged from the slot, a small, almost silvery light playing over its front tip. Something about it bothered me, but I didn't have time to second guess it all. In the little red readout above the columns of buttons appeared the number 107667, and after opening the door, I retrieved the card from its slot and slipped inside. Ahead of me was a long, white hall. I paused, Listening for footsteps, for shouts, anything. Only quiet. So far, so good. I slipped down toward the end of the hallway and heard some talking. A one-sided conversation. I peeked around the corner. Ten feet away, sitting at what looked like a nurse's station or admissions desk, was a thin, mustached Indian fellow in a white coat. He was on the phone, talking to a client from the sound of it. I waited till he reached for some records then slipped to the other side of the hallway, out of his line of vision. The hall extended in opposite directions, both of them dark. Since venturing down the other side of the hall meant passing the fellow on the phone, I headed down the hallway closest instead, eventually finding myself at a dead end, which led to a men's room. Another door sat adjacent to it, but it was locked. I got down on my knees and pulled out some pick tools Petey had given me. A few minutes later. I had the door open, and was deep in a labyrinth of white hallways. Names like transphenoidal DNR and therapy analysis etched on glass placards above the room's doors. For the most part, the place was empty of employees, and I was able to duck into a room or down a side hall whenever someone appeared. I finally found a room marked OC Records, and slipped inside. One of the consoles inside was on, and I settled into the chair studying the screen and popping another caramel into my mouth. After clicking on a few things and using a few password tricks culled from my day job, I managed to access Ashlyn's patient database. I dug out my phone and called Gypsum. She was ready for me. Where are you? Inside. I found their patient records. I'm just calling up hams now. The record's displaying. Let me scroll down a second. There's a prescriptions field at the bottom. Let's see. Um, looks like he was taking four medications. Poor guy. The first was something called xanthrocine.
1: That's a topical solution. Used for skin rashes, eczema, minor cases of shingles.
0: The second was Daphlinox. Looked like the prescription was for two bottles. And the last two were Rillium and Sidilinox. I could hear Gypsum scribbling down the names on the other end, mumbling as she did. She asked me to spell a couple of them. Jip, have you ever heard of these before? Only the first one,
1: but I'm no pharmacist. Hell, in reality, I'm barely a doctor. Never cured anybody other rigor mortis yet.
0: Did Petey tell you about my uncle? Yep. Alright, I'm looking up his record. Uh, hmm. Found it? Yeah drugs are listed, Perlintinox and Pacinium. I'm pretty sure Megan Ham and my Uncle Chaz all came here to pick up this stuff directly, which is what the white cards were for, to let them in, like an outpatient clinic. Speaking of Matthew Megan, I'll type in his name, too. And press enter, and nothing. Think here. There was a number on the door outside when I entered his card. God what was it? Um, 107667. Bingo! It's listed under the name Macy. The age seems right though. Looks like he was taking two drugs if this is him. The first one is Latalis.
1: Sounds right. Latalis is used for depression, and it is expensive. Pretty sure that's the same stuff his family had him on.
0: Looks like he was taking something else, too. Um, Taracinox. T-E-R-A-C-I-N-O-X. Mm-hmm. Chip, I don't get it. The drugs that each of them were taking were all different. That doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, I could see one of these pills having side effects, but all of them? I switched screens, doubling back and inputting the name of Megan's pharmaceutical, Tarasinox, in the search field. A list of orders came up, a long one, Ashland's patients, no doubt, but one entry at the top stood out, given it was a company name, not a person's. I selected it, and the record appeared. It was a huge order, enormous, to some warehouse in town. I gave Gypsum all the information, including a contact name at the bottom, a certain Ward Beechert. Jip, I think this is a recent order. Only last week. But it doesn't look like the stuff went out in tablet form, like what Megan had. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, go back again. You said Ham was taking Dafflinox, and so right? Your uncle was taken Perlendinox, and Megan was given something called terasnox.
0: Yeah, I think so. What about it? What are they for?
1: I don't know, but... But what? Well, the end to each of their names, that suffix, O-X, they usually use that with prenatal pharmaceuticals.
0: Prenatal? Yeah. Wait, you mean they were giving some 76-year-old guy with Addison's disease drugs that are supposed to be for a pregnant woman?
1: Well, I don't know. I'm not sure what they're for. Never heard of any of them. Do me a favor. Can you check the prescription fields of some of the other patients-
0: I tuned out suddenly, feeling something cold nuzzle my other ear. It was metal, and felt suspiciously, um, gun-like. Hang up. Oh, sure. Uh, gotta go now, Jip.
1: Now? What is it? What's going on? What- Very good. Now, step away from the console.
0: I pushed the chair back and stood up. An enormous hand smelling of ancient aftershave roughly flipped me around. Before me stood a security guard, a gruff old guy with a pot belly and silvery hair who looked like one of those old redneck southern sheriffs who'd somehow gotten lost on the way to his pension, ending up in the wilds of corporate America instead. Beside him stood a woman, probably some director from the looks of her, a short little Napoleon type with a bob of black hair that was giving way to gray. She looked 55 or more, but for a woman her age, I had to admit there was something exceedingly sexy about her. Maybe it was the elegant bolero jacket and black boots, the model-like cheeks, or the intelligence in the eyes. Whatever it was, she looked a formidable package. Slim, petite, and powerful. Powerful enough that she could regard hapless intruders like me with a bubbly smile as she was doing right now. Considering my two visitors were about the same age, I suppose they could have been husband and wife in some other life. But in this reality, they were a little too different. She had class, and he had a gun. My phone rang again. Obviously gypsum.
1: Leave it, pedal dick. Huh,
0: wouldn't dream of it.
2: What are you doing here?
0: I didn't say anything at first not having decided which lie to settle on yet.
1: Miss Steg asked you a question, Piddledick.
0: Um, forgive me for being trite, but uh, I think this is the part where I mutter, I'm not saying anything until I talk to my lawyer. (laughs) Probably. I felt like bowing in thanks, but didn't, being that there was something about her laugh that did not sit well with me. Frankly, she looked the kind who could have laughed at an execution, which is the way my run-in with them could very well end up, if I wasn't careful. Sorry, but I'm kinda new at this.
1: You don't say, dick.
0: I rolled my eyes. He was definitely a one-note Johnny. Given the looks of him, I kept waiting for the N-word to pop out. Maybe it just wasn't coming to mind for him yet. Or maybe he thought he was above such cliché. Mr. Pertwee, no need for the colorful language. Or at least branch out a little. Try pea brain or Putz Breath. Your friends will be impressed.
1: Why don't you just shut up, Piddledick?
0: I mouthed the last words silently with him, shaking my head. Then he frisked me, a little too roughly, frankly, looking for the wallet and ID I hadn't brought with me. Once he'd finished, he shook his head at the woman. Ms. Stegg nodded knowingly at me, and I smiled back.
2: We will still have that card from you, however. Hand it over, please. What card? <laughs> we know you have Mr. Macy's entry card. And we know you're not, Mr. Macy. The backscan told us so.
1: So we come looking for you, and lo and behold, here you was. Just enough of a piddledick to sit around waiting for us. Oh brother, I believe
0: the lady asked-
1: I know what the lady asked, but right now I ain't got no friends around to impress. So you're just gonna have to be impressed for him, ain't ya? Now fork over the card, piddledick.
0: I dug through my pockets for two seconds. Can't
2: find it. No kidding. Nope. You know I don't like being
0: pushy. A very good policy.
2: It's a bad business practice and rather unflattering personally and I always try to look and act my best. Plus I learned long ago that I have an uncanny knack for getting what I want. Call it luck or the rewards of patience but things always seem to come back my way in the end. So today I shall leave the powers of persuasion to others. Mr. Pertree, please phone the
0: police. I can take care of this. (sighs) Figured I'd wind up with Mr. Eager Beaver.
2: Mr. Pertree, this is not the local docs. Leave the rest to the official police. The phone is there. Please make the call.
0: Yeah, make the call, piddle dick. The office's junior G-man shot me an ultra-nasty look. I watched as he dialed and grumbled, his gun still trained my way, me praying that somehow I got really lucky and that Tehacket and the boys might show up. But I knew that wasn't in the cards. This was well outside their district. Pertwee ended up talking to somebody named Sergeant Holloway on the phone, definitely not part of Tehacket's inner circle, which meant the night was unfortunately going to get a whole lot longer for me from here on out, in fact far longer than I could have ever imagined. Fifteen minutes later, security guard Piddledick handed me off to a real police officer who just wasn't as pleased to see me as the Enigma boys would have been. As the guy was about to slap the cuffs on me and stuff me in the back seat, I started thinking about how wonderfully this was going to play out at work, making a bad situation for me horribly, horribly worse, or in this case, terminal, when it came to my co-workers like Hempstead and upper management. Doubtless it would mean my job, and probably more. In fact, I was already mulling over what my next career choice should be, flipping burgers or mowing lawns, when another patrol car entered the parking lot, pulling up beside us. I blinked a few times. Inside were Petey, now in his uniform, and Maddox, another Enigma boy. Maddox was, well, I'll just say it, he he looked like a woman, in the face anyway, which had earned him the nickname Pretty Boy in the department. Both he and Petey piled out, apparently hoping to play cavalry and pluck me from the arresting officer, a stiff upper-lip type named Lieutenant Toflinson. Unfortunately, Petey and Maddox started in with some mumbo-jumbo about just happening to be in the neighborhood and wanting to help out a fellow officer in need, garbage that even an eight-year-old wouldn't buy, and apparently not Lieutenant Tofflinson either. It was obviously the boy's idea of winging it. I shook my head tiredly amazed at how gifted Petey was at making everything he said sound so incredibly lame. Maddox wasn't doing much better. Actually, I liked the fellow a lot, maybe just because he was always exceedingly polite and charitable. In stark contrast to Petey, with his habit of asking for the shirt off my back, right after asking for my coat, tie, briefs, and shoes, all of which made the pairing of my two rescuers a sort of good cop, bad cop thing, or rather, considerate cop, thoughtless pinhead cop who should have his head soaked and his own briefs Melvined up to Canada. Just the same, it didn't take a test pilot to see they were about to crash and burn. To keep things from getting mucked up even more, and to keep the boys themselves from coming under suspicion, which, given Officer Talfenson's looks, seemed next on the program, I finally had to intervene, pulling out Ashland's two white entry cards and holding them out to Petey. Um, I suppose you fellows would be liking these back now, wouldn't you? Oh yeah. What are those? Um, these are... Um... Um... Oh, brother. Well, no need to really say. What? What is this? ED. Sorry, Lieutenant Tofflinson. I, um, stole these two cards from a couple of crime scenes these officers were at. Yeah, he even took one off a corpse. A corpse? We've been looking for these for a while. And me, too, remember? Oh, oh, yeah, and him, too, definitely. I'm afraid I'm a bit of a troublemaker, officer. Uh, that's why I came here tonight. I, I just like to see police cars show up at places. Kind of harmless fun, you know? I smiled sheepishly and made a subtle rolling motion with my hand for Petey, trying to get him to run with the idea. After a second or two, he did. But, unfortunately, in the absolute wrong direction. Instead of maybe telling Tofflinson how I'd, say, been a thorn in the department's side for months, putting in numerous fake calls, he decided to get creative. And before I knew it, he's telling Tofflinson about how I had a, um, thing for policemen, and would show up in the middle of the night at various crime scenes uninvited. Uh, He must have choked on that one. Stealing stuff and causing trouble now and then. But he didn't stop there. Oh no, not Petey. Then, he goes into lurid detail about all the, um, sticky magazines I supposedly have back at my apartment, sporting pics of various boys in blue, and how my prized possession was some perverted blow-up doll in a police cap. I slapped a hand to my forehead. In a span of seconds, I amazed myself by imagining ten different ways of killing Petey, all of them beautiful. It was no surprise that minutes later, I was bundled into the back of Petey and Maddox's squad car, Lieutenant Tofflinson refusing to even touch me. My brother-in-law sat in the car's passenger seat, conveniently out of reach, Maddox driving. Petey, before I kill you, please explain to me how Maddox and the squad car just happened to conveniently materialize out here. Uh, That was me, Nab, not Petey. T sent me over. Uh Uh-huh, T sent you over. Then just a little legal question here. Maddox, can I be charged for killing the same person twice? Petey? I didn't tell T. Then how did he find out, Petey? I told him. After Petey told you, Maddox? Well, yeah. As soon as T heard, he sent me over. I picked up Petey and we monitored dispatch on the way. And let me just say here, Sarge is not happy. Gee, thanks so much, Petey. Hey, I had to figure out some way of getting you out of there. After you left, your sis made me promise I had to protect your little food taster, and I gotta follow her orders long before I do yours. Yeah, alright. Guess I should be grateful anyway. Sorry. At least you spared me a criminal record. Um, well... What do you mean, well? I'm afraid we're still gonna have to book you. Your what? And so ends episode 4 of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. The cast included Michael Beringer as Security Officer Pertwee and Officer Maddox, Maggie Irvin as Gypsum, Tom Fahey as Petey, Cindy Rasmussen as Ms. Stegg, and in a performance that would make the castaways of Gilligan's Island pack up and shipwreck the minnow all over again, I, Michael McGee, played the part of NAB. The music used here was by Jamie Sieber, George Rabb, Andrew Potterton, Lee Mattiford, Devin Anderson, Audio-Technica, and Clouseau, and were courtesy of websites like Magnatune, Jamendo, CC Mixter, SoundSnap, Internet Archive, Podsafe Audio, and the Podshow Podsafe Network at music.podshow.com. The Tiger Rag was performed by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra, and the tune Charleston was played by Arthur Gibbs and his gang, and Runnin' Wild was performed by the Southland Six, Most of the sound effects were courtesy of SoundSnap at SoundSnap.com. All the song and music titles and the names of the artists heard in this episode can be found on the music page at the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. So that's it for this episode. Check back for episode 5 of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. Or click that old subscribe button or follow us to be notified about the release of the next episode. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying, no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain, and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians, it's just us. The Theatre of the Midnight Sun.